Welcome to Best True Crime Podcast, a division of Best True Crime Books, Games, and Video, LLC. I'm your lead investigator on this case, Judith A. Yates, award-winning true crime author, a criminologist, and a paranormal explorer. Every episode is an investigation where you and I explore true crime, forensics, historic cases, dark history, and criminal theory. We discuss the cases, share information, no chatter, no commercials, no off-topic. Now, grab your crime scene kit, a notebook, and your favorite hat. This is Best True Crime Podcast. Hey everybody, I'm Judith A. Yates, and I'm visiting with author Ron Francel, author of both true crime and fiction. His list of true crime includes Shadow Man, an elusive psycho killer in the birth of FBI profiling, and one of my personal favorite true crime books, national bestseller, The Darkest Night. It explores a monstrous crime against two of Ron's childhood friends in the small town where they grew up. And what I like best about it, it discusses the ripple effect of a crime even after four decades. Today, we are discussing the newly released Death Row. It is Ron's first fiction in more than 20 years. It's a murder mystery about a group of old men who find new life investigating a long-forgotten small-town homicide. And I've just started reading it. It's very, very good. Ron, welcome and good morning. Judith, thank you for having me. What a privilege. Well, thank you. Uh, Tell us about Death Row. Well, first of all, let's start this way. Every small town, even yours and all your listeners, I'm sure, Every small town has a diner, and in this diner, there are a bunch of old guys who gather on most mornings to fix what's wrong with the world. They tell tall tales, they poke fun at each other, and they remember their glory days, Uh, you know, compare the relative values of automobile batteries, things like that, you know. Right. Uh, and, And in death row, and I should, since we're... This is only in sound, and people can't see the spelling. I should say that the the title is Death Row, death as in hard of hearing instead of dying. Uh, and, And it's because there are these six or seven old codgers who get together in this little small town diner in the Colorado Rockies. They're all in their 70s or 80s. They're all of them, their best days are behind them. And they call themselves Death Row. Um, one of them is a retired homicide detective named Woodrow Bell. Uh, his friends call him Mountain, as in Mountain Bell. Get it? Uh, <laughs> only, yeah. only people of a certain age who remember the baby bells would <laughs> would know what I'm talking about there. But Bell is a crusty, cynical, reclusive old fart who who really just wants to fade away. Um, when his closest friend, who's a retired priest who has his own unorthodox past, brings him uh, a long-forgotten cold case from this small town, Bell's natural reaction is to just grumble and growl and 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 try to avoid it but the more he learns the more he he can't look away the problem is 
he's a retired cop. He's not a real cop anymore. And he has none of the high tech forensic tools that he once had in Denver. Um, and he isn't taken seriously by the local cops because after all, he's just an old guy, you know, he's, he's nobody. So all he has is death row, this motley crew of old guys who happen to have some skills that uh, sometimes they don't even realize they've got together. They get into this investigation and, and it quickly proves to be bigger than, than anybody imagined. And they realize they might be chasing a serial killer who's still active in Colorado at the time. So um, it's, it's a, it's a classical mystery, but um it's kind of been either the blessing or the curse of my book writing. I just don't want to do it like everybody else is doing it. Um, in my journalism, uh, in my book writing, I, I, I just sought to blend some ideas. And in the case of Death Row, I wanted to blend commercial crime fiction with a kind of literary exploration of men who've outlived their best days and who are now growing invisible to the rest of the world. So yeah, death row is, is an upmarket fiction that should appeal to both suspense fans and to, to fans of a little more literary storytelling because it delves into the li the lives of these old people who uh, we see every day but we no longer really actually notice. In this society, we think of elderly people as almost a throwaway society. And you know, that, that they do too. I mean, that they know that we're doing that, I should say. Uh, these guys, I think, reflect a feeling on the part of a lot of old people, not just older men. I think it's older men and women who kind of feel like they're growing invisible. They're sitting right there, but nobody really sees them. And it's because uh, the, the, the purposes they had in their life, whether it was in a career or a skill or raising a family or being a good community member, whatever it was, um, it's less so now. And, and, and it's sort of in decline by the day. So uh, I've populated this mystery with these old guys who who I, like I say, they contribute to the, uh, you know, it, it's amateur, uh, even though it's being done by a professional cop, but they're, they're contributing. And in the end, I think that, that there's something to be celebrated about that. Now, just talking about it makes it sound like but we're beating people over the head uh, with, with this notion of old guys uh and feeling invisible and we're, we don't i mean it, it, they're just there and they're they're a lovable bunch the the reviews uh that we're getting tend to say that the, it's it's they're they're sad about the book ending because they like these old guys and uh that's that's rewarding because i think in fiction crime writing uh, that's something I have to do. I have to create characters that are realistic enough and and who who make us care about what happens to them. 
And uh, I, I'm glad to hear so far anyway that uh, the, the old farts of Defro are, are that. Where did this idea come from to write this book? The characters themselves, uh, where did where were they born, so to speak? But where did oh, you get man. this idea? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's so strange. Um, it, it, many years ago, uh, I was talking to an elderly friend. Now, the elderly friend is still alive today. So, uh, you know, there's nothing to mourn here. But many years ago, I was talking to him and and uh, about uh, uh, our lives in journalism and things like that. And and he just offhandedly mentioned that he and his small town in, in the Northwest uh, belonged to a little coffee club uh, that got together at a diner most mornings. And they called themselves Deaf Row because none of them could hear. Uh, and wow. in that moment, in that blink, uh, a story popped into my head. Now, I didn't know the crime, and I didn't know who each of these characters would be, and I didn't know the interaction. But th suddenly, just with that mention, I said, that's a story. That's that that I could use that as a framework for a good story and have a good time writing about these characters and develop them. Um, the problem is, and I'm I'm living uh, a best-selling true crime author's life at the time. And so this this idea just kind of went to the back of my brain and and took a seat in the waiting room. Um, maybe never to be done. Uh, when you write true crime, when you do journalism, you're you're not thinking about doing fiction. Um, and uh, the, the the true crime was working. We were doing the books like Alice and Gerald and and Shadow Man and Morg, and they were doing terrifically. So why would I change that? Well. Hmm. Along comes COVID. <laughs> Suddenly, uh, in a yeah. lockdown, I can't book a hotel room. I can't dine out in a restaurant. I can't get on an airplane. I can't go into courthouses and libraries. I can't even casually pump gas. Um, and I certainly can't talk face to face with the few hundred people that I typically interview for my kind of true crime writing, um, it, which depends on that boots on the ground research. So I locked myself in my office with 40 years of experience in journalism and, and true crime writing. And I imagined these, these old guys of death row and, and gave them a mystery to solve. Yeah, because during COVID, we couldn't even get online to to pull records because there was nobody to pull records. Exactly. I mean, um, my my kind of uh, crime, true crime writing is narrative nonfiction, which which uh, tells a completely true story, but it, it does it in a way that you might expect to see in a novel that it develops characters it foreshadows things to come it 
It has cliffhangers. It has a lot of interesting elements. They're completely true, but it's recognizing them and using them to keep the the reader moving through the book. Um, so it's not that uh, I'm unfamiliar with with uh, the the dramatic nature of fictional storytelling, but it was a form and not a practice, really. Uh, and, and, and so, really, I had to go back and study up a little bit about fictional storytelling. It is, it, it, there's, there's a little discomfort in, uh, in a journalist and in a true crime writer when somebody, you know, plops down in their chair and says, okay, now you can make everything up. Right. <laughs> it's just not in my nature, but it, it, it was fun nevertheless, because I got to, uh, I got to play in a, in a sandbox that I rarely do. Right. I mean, I, I have a, a friend who goes from fiction to nonfiction and she said in fiction writing, I can kill off this character or give them an award or give them a job to do or take the job away. They're your people. But by the end of the day, they're so real, it's strange that you're not calling them on the phone. Well, and and there is that. And uh, somebody asked me um, just within the past week when we were talking about Death Row, uh, do, your character, do your characters talk to you? Um, you know, I've... I've heard a lot of writers say that they carry on conversations with their characters. Uh, I think it's been studied and, and I think most fiction authors say they've heard their characters speak while they, they write the book. Um, uh, some of them say they've actually carried on conversations with these imaginary voices um you know when i hear a fellow writer say stuff like that i usually take a subtle step backward uh hearing voices in your head is a symptom of schizophrenia and i just don't want to take any chances you know but but <laughs> i must behave as a, as a fiction writer i have to behave on my character's behalf you know think about it this way you know we all all of us imagine hearing the voices of other people when we think about how an argument might have gone differently, or we know uh, how someone uh, is likely to respond to the news we're about to give them in real life. So we're carrying on these imaginary conversations with other people. Um, uh, that's just a normal thought process. My imaginary characters, though, they live the life I give them and nothing more. Uh, I'm sometimes surprised by what my subconscious produces, but I'm not um, possessed or surrounded or dependent on these characters. I don't feel their physical presence or smell them or touch them or hear them, but there's no doubt in my mind who's in charge uh, of this relationship. I'm just merely surprised occasionally 
how I think on their behalf. The last fiction I did, it was about a girl who falls into, joins a cult because of another girl. And I could actually see them interacting, speaking. Okay, what would she do next? You know. And that's um, a good imagination. I mean, that's that's how it works, I think. On the other hand, um, though, uh, if I listen to my my fiction colleagues uh, correctly, they 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 can be engaged in conversations with these characters that even surprise them, the writers. I don't want to be listening to the voices in my head tell me something that I didn't know. <laughs> On the other hand, uh, I, I'm I'm acting or behaving or thinking on behalf of in in the Def Row case uh, more than a dozen different colorful and vivid characters. So you get into a kind of method writing, right? Like a method actor, you you put yourself deeply into that character. I think in in writing, you're doing the same thing in a way. You're giving them uh, interesting little quirks and um, uh, different um, different characteristics that that mark them as individual. Uh, it's it's interesting to me. I don't. We don't have to do that in true crime, right? Right. You know, we don't. The, the, the characters are the characters uh, are are exactly what they were before I started writing the book. The the the, the crime, the setting, everything. There's there's nothing I make up. Um, so that was that was the harder that was the harder transition for me. Uh, it wasn't. Defro isn't my first novel. It's just the first fiction I've written in more than 20 years because my true crime and my journalistic career took over. Shifting to your true crime, how do you go about selecting the cases that you're going to write about? Because obviously The Darkest Night, that happened right there in your front yard, Yes, your, your neighborhood, your community. But how would you go about selecting cases you're going to write about? Uh, the secret of my success, I think, as a writer, is that I never pick a story that I can screw up. Uh, you know, <laughs> I I really don't want to take any chances. I I don't want I don't trust myself. Um, the stories that draw me uh, and draw me the the quickest and the deepest are more complicated stories they they their power is universal it deals with stuff like you know perverse love and desperation and devotion and dogged persistence and and things like that i am not as a true crime writer are probably more legion than the things i am and one of the things i'm not is fascinated by serial killers and the bad guys in my stories they just don't do it for me except as the catalysts for 
the things that are about to happen to ordinary people and the extraordinary circumstances that they're going to find themselves in, you know, victims, families, cops, uh, prosecutors, they didn't wake up that morning and say, Hey, gee, I, today I'm, I'm going to deal with a serial killing or something. It, it, it's not like that. So these ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances fascinate me and i want to tell those kinds of stories and so in true crime when i'm looking for stories i'm looking for those kinds of elements interesting characters interesting uh, situations interesting crimes i'm not a big fan of of the uh, you know pardon the language garden variety sort of domestic violence that makes up a lot of our uh, true crime uh, bookshelf today uh, where husband kills wife or vice versa there's an investigation somebody's arrested there's a trial and then somebody gets what's coming to them it's fairly formulaic fairly ordinary in my view so I'm looking for different kinds of stories that are going to tell us something about the human condition, so to speak, but how, how ordinary people face these things. In my books, I want to imagine that readers are identifying not with the Ted Bundys or the, you know, the, the Ed Kempers or... Rodney Alcala, you name them, uh, the people whose names we all know from our TV and from our true crime books and movies and everything else. Uh, I'm hoping that my readers are identifying with the people who didn't see this coming and asking themselves, what would I do in that situation? And I, and I hope they're propelled through these stories by their interest in the real characters just like in death row um, by carrying what happens to those those characters that's what i'm aiming for and and when i'm looking i'm looking for those kinds of elements i was at a cold case conference and i sat down next to this white female that I knew from nowhere. And I said, what do you do? And she said, oh, I run a art gallery in New Orleans. And I said, oh, wow, that's interesting. And we just kind of chatted about that, went on our business. And then the next thing you know, she's stepping on stage. Her name is Kathy and she survived Bundy at Cayo, mm -hmm. in Florida. So it's one of those, like you said, you never know who you're going to run into. You never know. You know, it could be the person next to you. Select something that tells a story. Not exactly. We want to tell that story, that human story. You know, there's a difference, I think, between, well, definitely entertaining and educating. I, I don't like that formula of bad thing happened, bad person caught, here's how, now they're in prison, the end. You know, what does that teach us? Uh, exactly. It, I don't think it does, but we are fascinated with those characters. Um, I always play a little game that kind of makes, it, it, it kind of brings this into focus. Um, 
we could, you and I could talk to any self-avowed true crime fan. We could go in Facebook uh, chat groups, any anything, and we could ask this question: Can you name who can name ten serial killers in the next ten or sixty seconds? Everybody pass. Everybody knows. 10 serial killers. Question number two is always, now name 10 victims. And I'll give you 60 minutes. You just can't use Google. And <laughs> nobody can do it. The all-knowing Google. Right. It, it, it's the, the, the fact that we're so fascinated with these these defective minds, these unfinished souls like Bundy, um, is is a, a, a sad commentary to me about who we are, and um, I'm. I, it disappoints me, and when I write stories, I want to avoid that. I need to tell you about the psychology. I need to tell you about the, the bad guy. But I'm really more interested in, in you uh, seeing the ordinary people who are caught up in this. And, you know, the criminal mind has always fascinated us. Uh, you know, especially when a deviant crime happens, our, our rational minds want to put things back in order. They want to make sense out of something that's senseless. Why is what we ask ourselves. It's uh, ancient. I, I think this goes back to caveman days. Since the beginning, we've wanted to understand the threats that are out there to feel safe and to avoid unnecessarily dying. I don't think that fascination has changed. I don't, it's ancient. It's in our DNA. Oh, definitely. But our media has. Uh, we now have cable and movies and internet and audiobooks and 24-7 news and uh, podcasts and social media and streaming. We, they're all feeding that primitive desire to see our monsters coming and we look at these things and we imagine that it's somehow going to give us an edge in seeing the monsters coming i i, I say well that was easier when they looked like charles manson you know but now what what all of these media representations are are telling us is that they they look just like us we can't see them coming. And that scares the bejesus out of us. Ron, thank you so much for talking to us today and sharing Certainly. your ideas and thoughts. And definitely, definitely pick up Death Row because it is, I'm on chapter two right now. It is fascinating. And I love the people. I love the characters. I love the setting because we've all seen it. We've all been to Dairy Queen you know, to pick up breakfast and there's a bunch of old guys with their coffee and you know, that's their seat. That's their chair. Don't that's sit right. there. But thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It, thank you for making time for me. It's been fun. Of course. Well, let's talk again sometime soon. We will. 
Hey listeners, this is Judith A. Yates reminding you that it is getting cold outside. And while you're inside staying warm, your pets should be warm too. Even if it's just the garage or in the barn, get your pets some hay or straw to curl up in to stay warm. You should keep your cats and dogs inside when the temperature falls below 40 degrees outside, even dogs with thick fur. Antifreeze is a deadly poison. It has a sweet taste that attracts animals, so be sure and clean up any spilled antifreeze. Check your car's hood before starting the car. Either bang on the hood or honk your horn, because cats and small animals will crawl up in the engine space to stay warm. Cats should never be left outdoors, even if they roam outside during other seasons. Bring them in. And remember, a pet carrier is not a doghouse. If you need a doghouse and are having hard times financially, you can usually find them for free. Check Craigslist under the free listings. Always provide fresh drinking water in the winter. And for more information, go to www.aspca.org. Let's leave animal abusers out in the cold. Let's not leave the animals. Thank you for joining me on this investigation, exploring true crime, forensics, historic cases, dark history, and criminal theory. This is Best True Crime Podcast. No chatter, no commercials, no off-topic. I do hope you will subscribe. This podcast runs off donations only. You can drop us a donation, $35 or more, and I'll send you a signed book. Just go to www.besttruecrime.com. My name is Judith A. Yates, award-winning true crime author, a criminologist, and a paranormal explorer. Thank you for joining me on Best True Crime Podcast, a division of Best True Crime Books, Games, and Video, LLC. Be safe out there.